Hello and welcome to the very first episode of A Sinister Spotlight. My name is Lindsay and I wanted to create a fun amateur podcast that discusses and reviews true crime documentaries and series um, because anyone that knows me knows that I'm fascinated by true crime stories and I'm forever recommending documentaries so I decided why not let's just make a podcast on it. So tonight I'm joined by David Stobie, the man who got me into the podcast world. So Stobie, thank you for getting me set up and thank you for joining me tonight. You're welcome, Lindsay. You're welcome. So do you want to share a little bit about the podcast that you do before we get started? Uh, which one? So, <laughs> <laughs> well, this um, is true. You've got too many. Yeah, well, yeah, tell me about it. So the one that, the ones that I'm focusing on at the moment are the Perth podcast and the science of fiction. Perth podcast is kind of like a local news update thing. And the science of fiction is taking real life science and applying it to moments from fiction, uh, such as like superhero movies and comics and uh, films and things like that. So yeah, that, that's the two I do. Quite enjoy them. Uh, yeah, nice no, and that's, stressful. that's good. I've actually made a guest appearance on the science of fiction, so I must say it's very good. <laughs> you have indeed. That'll be out uh, the end of April, I think that one will be out. Uh, oh, exciting. <laughs> I can't even remember. It was like ages ago now. It so was. I actually can't wait to listen to it back. <laughs> right. So will we just jump into this one? Yeah, let's go for it. The first time I killed somebody, and it was such a rush. Now, Jody gave a number and of it was just prior like to the trial ago. on camera. But it's what she said when she documentary that we have um, is called The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst. Um, before we get into it, um, what I would recommend is probably watching the documentary before listening to this podcast, because there will be spoilers. Um, so The Jinx was actually recommended to me by yourself, Stobie. Um, you'd watched the first episode and said, I really need to get, like, you know, I need to find out where I could watch the rest of them because it's so interesting. And I then found it and we watched it together and we were like, Holy shit, this is just, <laughs> yeah. it's just, yeah, it's just mad from start to finish. Um, mm-hmm. so a little rundown on what it's about. Um, The Jinx is a six part docuseries about a wealthy New York real estate heir, Robert Durst, who killed his neighbor in 2001, but is also suspected in the disappearance of his first wife in 1982 and the murder of his friend in around Christmas time of the year 2000. Durst was tried in 2003 for the murder of his neighbour and was acquitted by a jury on the grounds of self-defence, which we'll look into a bit more later on. Um, I think the interesting part of this story is that Durst refused to speak to the media about any of this until 10 years later after the release of a film called All Good Things, which was based on Durst's life. Uh, Durst got in touch with the director of the film, Andrew Jarecki, and offered to do an interview with him. So I think that's one of the biggest things that's quite mental about it mm-hmm. is that he's essentially gone 10 years being acquitted never been um you know never really been charged with anything other and he's kind of gone under the radar for 10 years and then he suddenly just pops up and decides i want to do an interview yeah it, so, it's it's crazy it's almost like he's um like not getting enough attention and he wants a bit of attention again yeah yeah that's what i thought like because under the circumstances, you would think that's something you would want to go under the public eye. You'd mm-hmm. be th- you'd be thankful for the time that's passed and that you know it, people aren't talking about it anymore. And it's like he's wanting it to resurface. But why yeah. you would want it to when it's all about you and what you've supposedly done is beyond me. Yeah, that's exactly right. You would just kind of put your head down and be like, hmm, and walk away for a bit and. This is one of the, like, there are a lot of decisions he's made throughout the course of this documentary that just do not make sense. This is one of them. This is one of the first ones. I don't think it's the first one, but it's one of the first ones. It's definitely one of the first ones. There's so many questionable actions that he takes um, throughout, which we'll look into. So I rewatched it just um, last night and today. The first episode starts off straight away with Morris Black, the neighbour, 
the dismembered body is found, mm-hmm. all except for his head. So it's found in the river, um, not far from where they lived, I believe. I don't think it was that far. It wasn't. Um, but no. it, was in, it was in Gaverson, Texas. I think it was a young boy came across floating bin bags in the river um, and they found there was his legs, his torso, his arms, um, but everything was there except for the head. The police investigation leads them back to Morris Black's apartment and they end up finding blood in his neighbour's apartment that's supposedly rented by a deaf-mute middle-aged woman called Dorothy Sinar, who is then soon revealed as Robert Durst in disguise. So already it's just crazy. Like The opening of this episode is there's a dismembered body and there's also a man (laughs) claiming to be a woman, a deaf-mute woman. Yeah, and uh, I mean... At that point, I was like, what is this all about? It was such a mad opening to any documentary. You almost thought it was done and dusted in the first episode. Pretty much. You just think it can't get any more outlandish than this. No. Um, so they, they do arrest um, Durst. They do find him and they arrest him. And from the minute that the police sort of... The, from the minute that they take him on, they think... What a weird looking chap. Like, he doesn't look like the sort that could kill and dismember a body. I think they'd actually described him as looking like a librarian. Yep, um, they did. <laughs> which is just, it's, I mean, I don't think he looks like a librarian, but he does, I suppose he doesn't look the sort that would be capable of it. Yes. Um, and he's very, I think he was quite, he, he just didn't seem like very aware of what was going on, like going on around him. Like, he said to the, one of the officers, he said, well, I mean, what did I do? Like, you know, they, they <laughs> said you're being charged with murder. He went, what did I do? And he's like, well, do you have £250,000 to make your bail? And he kind of looks at them and says, oh, well, not on me. And the police are obviously stunned at this. Like, who is this guy? Like, what is going on here? Little do they know that he is Robert Durst, a very wealthy New York heir to uh, like a real estate firm. So within like the 24 hours, he gets the $250,000, makes bail, and he flees. Like, mm-hmm. straight away, he just flees. So he doesn't turn up for his arraignment uh, at court. Um, so already he's he's murdered someone, he's dismembered the body, he's dressed as a woman, he makes bail, and he flees. Like, it's just all a whirlwind at the very beginning. But then, this is one of my favourite parts of this story. <laughs> he's later caught, um, I think it was in Pennsylvania, he's later caught in Pennsylvania for shoplifting a $6 chicken salad sandwich, despite having 300 grand in cash in the boot of his car. Like, why? Like, he knows he's on the run for not attending court because he's been charged with murder. Why does a man who is very wealthy and currently has $300,000 in cash in the boot of his car steal a $6 chicken salad sandwich? And the thing is, at this point, he'd gone to a lot of effort to change his appearance as well. Yeah. So he'd gone all this effort, shaved himself, wore different clothes, and then just makes this almost deliberate mistake <laughs> and gets caught. For me, I guess it's it asks the question, was he deliberately wanting to be caught? Was this an intentional act? I I think he did. I think he was either wanting to be caught or just wanting to stick the middle finger up to everybody and be like, you know, it's almost like playing chicken. He was just trying to see if he could get away with it or not. Yeah, definitely. That's what I think anyway. Because, you know, you you wouldn't do that otherwise. Like, he knows he has the money. He has the money readily available. He wouldn't try and do something so stupid when he's on the run for murder. No. No. But but this is the thing. Like, throughout this whole series, you, you question a lot of his actions and the thought process behind it. Yeah. It's very strange. Yeah, it's almost like his grasp of reality, and it, and it will be, but it's it's altered. Um, it's not. He's come from a completely different world to like, say, you and me. Yeah. And it's almost like he's not aware, or he's quite cocky about what the consequences could be. Yeah, definitely. So after this, you know, the rest of the first episode, it mostly sets the scene for his trial starting. Um, but it also makes mention of his first wife, Kathy, who went missing in 1982. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, this is kind of important because this is why, I mean, at the start of this episode, you find out he's dressed as a woman, he's renting an apartment, but you don't know why. Why is he doing that when he's not murdered anybody yet? 
you know, why is he on the run essentially? Why is he trying to disguise himself? And it's it comes back into this where his first wife, Kathy, went missing and it ties in with that. Um, so yeah, the, the rest of the episode that kind of makes mention of it. Um, and then the end of the episode is the phone call between Durst and Jarecki, the director of All Good Things, 10 years after the trial. And Durst asks Jarecki to interview him despite avoiding the media for the last 10 years. And then it just leaves it on a cliffhanger there and then. Mm-hmm. Like, and you're just grasped from the beginning. Like, what is just, yeah. And like, it's yeah. a question everything. So the first time I heard about this was on a podcast that I love called Fresh Talk, where Chris and Dan were talking about, and Chris was saying, like, how as the documentary goes on, things are happening in real life at the exact same time. And I was like, how is that possible? Yeah. But, like, seeing this whole thing, the way this is set up, this is what happens. As Durst is interviewed by Jarecki, there's still lots of strange developments happening at the same time. And it's just a bizarre, almost unique style of documentary in that way. Yeah, it is, definitely. Like, it's things are still unravelling as Jarecki is interviewing Durst, which... Like in the later episodes, that starts coming to light as well. Like what kind of things are happening? Um, yeah, it is really unique in that way. Mm-hmm. So, sort of moving on to the second episode. This is where you start to see. This is like the start of the interview between Jareki and Durst, as well as the start of the trial. Now that he's been caught, etc. Um, and they also start discussing his childhood and. I mean, it's one of these, I suppose it's one of these interesting ones. He grew up in wealth and you think, you know, what possibly went wrong that he's kind of led this sort of life? But he did witness his mother's suicide at the age of seven, which obviously had a huge impact on him later on in life. And then it moves on to the story of how Kathy and Robert met. Through interviewing Kathy's friends and family, they describe him as an oddball and controlling towards Kathy. So you're starting to see more of a, like, yeah, he, he was kind of leading a relatively normal lifestyle, but there was trouble in his marriage to Kathy. And then it just goes straight into how Kathy goes missing. From the beginning, no foul play suspected by the police. And from, I think it was from Robert's account of the of what happened the last time he saw her, he claims that they, you know, they'd spent the evening together in South Salem and she got the train back to the city because she attended medical school. Um, And that was the last time he saw her, but he spoke to her later on via the phone. The doorman at the apartment that she stayed at, he'd seen her and took her up to her apartment and she phoned the dean of the medical school on the Monday to say that she wouldn't be attending because she was ill. And then mm. after that, she was declared missing. Nobody had heard from her, nobody had seen her. So they suspect the police didn't suspect foul play purely on the basis that everything seemed relatively normal. Um, and because they were aware that it wasn't the most functional of marriages, that they just suspected that she took off. Yeah, and at this point, I took this all at face value. So I took this that she yeah. she did, you know, they, they had their violent argument. I think, did she not turn up slightly drunk after being at a yes. party? And he wasn't happy about this. So uh, eventually they had a fight. She got on the train, went to the city, you know, and phoned the, the medical school on a Monday, say she wasn't feeling well. Everyone seemed like plausible at this point. Yeah. And that that's the fun thing about this documentary as it went on. I found myself sitting there right up until the very, very, very last minute wondering, did he do it or did he not? You know, and, and it, it, there was all the, there was just that air of doubt throughout the whole thing, which made it really enjoyable because I was coming up with so many different theories that were completely wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's the exact same as me. Like, there were so many times, especially during the interview, you were looking at him and you could tell he was a bit, you know, he was a bit weird. He he had a lot of this eye twitching thing going on and he, when he's telling a story, it's all matter of fact. There's no 
kind of emotion behind it. It's just, this is what happened. That's that. But even still, I kind of felt that he was telling the truth. Mm-hmm. Really? I, I was like, yeah, no, I think I believe him. Like, yeah. I do believe him. And But then as things start to, like, develop, you're a bit like, mm, I don't know, not quite sure, until the sort of very end, and then you're like, oh, <laughs> that's yeah. when the big kicker comes. Yeah. yeah, so things like the troubles in their marriage were um, Robert didn't want to have any kids as well, and Kathy did fall pregnant, and he made her get an abortion. Mm-hmm. And he... He says in the interview to Jarecki that he felt he would be a jinx, um, which I presume is where this documentary got its name from. He felt he would be a jinx, like a bad father, because of the upbringing that he had had. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, again, Robert retells the story of the last time he saw Cathy. There was a violent argument. Um, she gets the train to the city. And his family actually discouraged him from phoning the police. Um, and he also claims in his alibi that he, after Kathy was gone, he had come back from the train station because I believe he dropped her off. Um, he goes to the neighbour's house and has a drink with the neighbour. So everything seemed pretty normal. Everything seemed fine. And then you see the neighbour who says it's absolute fabrication. Mm-hmm. He never came round here for a drink. I never saw him that night. But nobody, like the police never questioned me about it. So... The thing about this as well is back then there was not a very thorough investigation into her disappearance. I think the police just more or less assumed that she ran off because mm-hmm. she wasn't happy anymore. And he, because she did file for divorce and he didn't accept the um, divorce agreement. So I think they pretty much had it in their head that this was an open and shut case. She's done a runner and she's not coming back. Yeah. So it was kind of like a shoddy um, police investigation into it. So yeah, the neighbour disproves his alibi and Jarecki actually asks him, asks Durst about this in the the interview and Durst comes back and says quite confidently that he lied about it. He just quite outwardly says, oh yeah, no, I lied about my alibi. Um, I lied about being at my neighbour's and I lied about phoning her um, because he wanted the police to just leave him alone. Which again, it's just kind of this weird this weird attitude he has, like his wife's gone missing and he's lied to the police and nobody says anything about it. But here we are 10 years later, obviously going to be asking these questions. And he turns around and says that he just wanted to be left alone. Like this is going to put speculation on him that he was involved. Yeah. And that that's where things start to, you start to get a little bit of doubt in there because he's like, well, I just lied. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, if you could lie about that, what else are you lying about? And yeah, okay, everyone's capable of lying, but if you're lying to the police during investigation, you've got something to hide. Yeah, exactly. You know, he's been forthcoming about the fact that they didn't have the best of marriages. They said, I think his words were, it's like most marriages, they have disagreements, but it wasn't unhealthy. Um, he's been forthcoming and everything with that. But yet he lied about where he was and what he was doing. So, but he never, he doesn't provide an answer as to what he was doing or where he was. So, yeah, again, it just, all these kind of things are weird to me that he essentially could have gotten away with all this. But by doing this interview 10 years later, these are the kind of things that are coming up and these are coming into the public eye again. You've just admitted that you lied. Yeah. So, yeah. And then. Episode three is where it gets very interesting as well. This is where the um, it kind of moves on from sort of the disappearance of Cathy in 1982, and it kind of skips forward about 18 years because a snitch comes forward, someone who's been arrested. I can't remember where he was arrested, but he claims that he knows of a murder that happened in South Salem back in 1982 of a woman called Kathleen, which is Cathy. Yeah. Um, so it reopens the whole investigation and new detectives looking at the case think that the investigation that was done prior was quite, you know, it was poor. Basically, mm-hmm. they were treating it as a missing persons case, not a homicide. So the case gets reopened um, after 18 years and they search the house and the lake that was behind um, Robert and Kathy's home. But the search comes up with nothing. I mean, it is 18 years later. 
not quite sure what they would be expecting to find. <laughs> I guess they were hoping to find a body, but after 18 years, it's pretty slim. Someone else is living there now as well, aren't they? Yes, that's right. So Because they essentially went banging on her door and said, we want to search this house for a possible murder that took place here 18 years ago. <laughs> what a shame for her. But, I know. <laughs> um, but yeah, so... This this is where it ties into why Robert was then on the run, you know, why he started disguising himself and he moved to Texas because mm-hmm. this this case was being reopened and this attitude of I wanted to be left alone. He says it quite a lot throughout the series, like I want the police to leave me alone. Um, and this is why he went on the run. He didn't want to be Robert Durst anymore with this investigation underway. And this episode introduces his best friend, Susan Berman. And through throughout the case being reopened, she kind of took it upon herself to become the media spokesperson for Robert. Yep. And there was then speculation made that Susan was the one who made the phone call to the medical school pretending to be Kathy, because this investigation showed that there was no credible evidence to prove that Kathy even left South Salem. Yeah. The I think the doorman... Had cu- the doorman had come out and said that he never saw her um, that night. Um, things like that that start emerging from this. So, yeah, they actually have no credible evidence to believe that she left South Salem and there was speculation that Susan made the phone call. Yeah, and th- th- this bit here was like, uh, as soon as they introduced Susan and the nature of their relationship, and as much as he claims they were just friends, they were just friends... There was something more. And a hundred percent. As soon as she was introduced, I was just straight away and I, I was like, she phoned the medical school. So this this was where my theory at this point was she phoned the medical school. She made that yeah. call. Yeah, I agree. Cause the so the thing about Susan as well, when the introdu- the introduction of her, she's um she's a writer and she went to school with Robert. And she, I think she later finds out at like the age of 21 or something that she's a mob boss's daughter. Yeah. She not find out in a book. Yeah, she did. She ends up writing a book about it. Um, but yeah, she finds out at the age of 21 that she's a mob boss's daughter and she's quite proud of this. Like, um, she has like her dad's mugshot, um, framed in her living room and things. Like, I think it's like the nor- notoriety of it. She's quite fascinated by. Mm-hmm. And I think this is why she was so keen to be close with Robert because this is another man who comes from a wealthy background, who has resources, who needs her, needs her protection. And I think it's just, it's essentially the drama of it that she enjoys. And that's why she took it upon herself to become the media spokesperson because she's familiar with the media from being a writer. Yeah. So yeah, like she's, when, you, when you're introduced to her, she's a strange character, but you also think, she has to be complicit in this. I think she she knows what happened to Kathy back then. Yeah. Yeah, so it starts kind of going on about this and um, then, just shockingly, the revelation hits um, that Susan is murdered. She's murdered in the year 2000. It's Christmas time. Um, it was a gunshot wound to the head. Um, no forced entry, so the killer was likely invited into the home now, there was two, obviously a lot of people speculated that this would be the work of Robert Durst because if she knows what happened to Kathy and now that the case is being reopened, he wants any kind of witnesses to be silenced. Yeah. Um, so that was one theory. But the other theory was, now she was writing a piece on the mob and she had stated to several friends that this piece that she's writing, there's something big is going to come from it. Um, And they were like, oh, like, what do you mean? She's like, oh, you'll have to wait and see. So then there was the other theory that it was actually a mob hit um, because it was a gunshot wound to the back of the head. um, You know, that's quite common of a mob style hit. So two plausible theories. Again, it's just one of those, it just seems too coincidental that this is someone that Robert Durst is involved with. And just after the case is being reopened, she's murdered. And it's the timing, like you say, it's the timing thing that yeah. is just too on the nose for me. Yeah, absolutely. Now, this is where one of the most interesting parts of the series comes in. With Susan's murder, 
there is a note left at um, no, there's a note that's then sent to the police station. I think it was maybe a couple of days. Um, they receive it a couple of days after they find Susan's body, but it was sent before the murder. They receive a note with Susan's address and it says the word cadaver. So someday the killer has obviously has sent a note to the police station to say there's a body at this address. Go and get it. So if... If it's the killer that sent this, which could only be the killer because it was done, like the post ma- the post stamp showed that it was sent prior to the murder. If this was a mob hit, they wouldn't do that. No. They, you know, they would just, they would essentially carry out the killing and go on. But this is obviously someone who cared enough for her. They didn't want her body to be lying about her house. Yeah, so th- this this letter is really interesting. One they talk about is the use of the word cadaver rather than body or dead person or anything like that, which links into his wife who was at medical school. Yeah. And so they reckon, I don't know if they talk about it in this episode, but they reckon that, you know, he's probably discussed with her a lot and, you know, gotten used to the terminology such as cadaver. Yeah, that's right. They do, they do touch on that in like a sort of later episode. Is it a later one? Yep. And yeah. then also the the spelling of the address as well. There, there's so much. Yes. And like you say, so they spell he's, the person spells Beverly wrong with an extra e at the end. Um, yeah. And then like you say, the fact that it's almost like they don't want the body left there; they want it to be found. But a phone call could be your voice could be identified. You know, letters as anonymous yeah. as you're going to get. It is, it's 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 an interesting sort of. What's the word point, I guess, I'm looking for? It's an interesting part of the story. It's just this simple letter. But kind of moving on to like episode four, this is where they, they start the trial for Morris Black. Because the thing about the series is it's kind of jumping back and forth um, from when the trial happened, from when the murders happened, to sort of ten years later and things like that. But um, So they start the trial for Morris Black um and the trial itself is very interesting. Like, Robert actually takes the stand as the defence's first witness. And the prosecution are, you know, they're quite flabbergasted by this. They're like, oh, like, they're going to put that man on the stand. Um, but he gets up there. Again, to me, that's a, that would be a huge risk. Because when you're from watching the first three episodes, you can see that this man tells, he'll recall memories, he'll tell stories with no emotion. And mm-hmm. you're going to put someone like that on the stand. It's, to me, as a, I think if I was on the jury, I'd be a bit concerned looking at him being like, he's just so matter of fact about this. Like, he could be seen as a cold-blooded killer. Mm-hmm. But they go with it anyway. And he recalls what happened and he claims that there was a struggle between him and Morris um, with a gun and the gun goes off. Yeah, so he starts off by sort of explaining why he was on the run. Um, which obviously we know now is because they were reopening Kathy's case and he didn't want to be a part of it, hence mm-hmm. the disguises. As Morris and Robert became friends, Robert confided in Morris with the truth of him, why he was on the run. Um, and the trial sort of shows that Morris's character as being quite an unstable, unpredictable and erratic character. Yep. Um, he's claimed to have shot... Um, he, he was given an eviction notice... Um, and he put it on the wall and he shot the notice. So, yeah. like this <laughs> Only, is in Robert, <laughs> Only in America. Only in America. So Robert's telling these kind of stories about the, the character of Morris um, for the, the night or day in question. Robert comes home to find Morris in his apartment with a gun and there was a struggle between them for the gun. The gun went off and Morris was hit. Um. The theory that the police sort of have is that Morris found out just exactly who Robert was and how wealthy he is um, and threatened to tell the New York DA where he was if he didn't help him, which plausible, I'd say, plausible Mm -hmm. kind of theory. Um, The prosecution in the trial, they they present things like other injuries on Morris's body that are inconsistent with Robert's story and they state that a neighbour heard two shots, not one. Um, and Robert, on the stand, just blatantly says he's got no explanation for it. Um, 
again, it's just this whole matter-of-fact sort of demeanour that he has. Mm-hmm. And obviously he was asked, you know, if this was an accident, why would you dismember the body and get rid of it? Why wouldn't you Why wouldn't you phone the police? And I suppose this is the part that, for me, like, considering everything that's so coincidental, it is plausible. Like, I could understand where he's coming from. He, you know, he said that he did it because, um, you know, he's on the run because he doesn't want to be a part of this, the case of Kathy being reopened. Um, he doesn't want Andy to find him. And mm-hmm. if he phoned the police who are going to look at this and say, okay, you have all this, me- this media attention from New York for possibly killing someone. You rented this apartment dressed as a woman, a deaf mute woman. You claim that this is self-defense and you've killed him. You know, who's who's going to believe him? Yeah, like, and it, it's, it is that. So, yeah, you could believe that that fear caused that irrational thought process. Yeah, yeah, I could see definitely. Like, I don't, I, I can't say for definite that the murder was self-defense or manslaughter, but I can understand the dismemberment of the body and disposing of it. I can definitely understand that. Um so, but and this is where it comes back to the 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 head being missing. When they find the body, they find the the torso, the arms, the legs, but they never find the head. And so they ask Robert, obviously, to you know tell about when he dismembered the body and things. And he took it to the river, and he expected everything to sink, but all the bags were floating. Um, but he never actually tells why what happens to the head, but the, the, in the investigation, they never find the head. To this day, Morris, Morris Black's head's never been found. And this is like a key part of the investigation because because he was shot, I believe he shot in the head. So without the head, they can't actually prove if this was in self-defense or if this was murder. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that this the head has gone missing or has never been recovered is crucial to this case. Yeah. Because you can't, you now can't disprove it was self-defense. No, exactly. Because if um, if they found the head and there was a bullet hole in the back of the head, then you know that that's it. There's no way you could claim self-defense with that. No yeah, way. Absolutely. So this is this is essentially why he ends up being acquitted. Now, again, the interesting thing about this trial is that he admits that he's involved in killing Morris Black. He admits to the dismemberment of the body, but the state of Texas only take him to trial for the murder. They don't bring charges against him for the dismemberment of the body or anything like that, Um, which to me is a massive oversight in -hmm. this because if he does get off on self-defense, he can walk free, like, without giving him any kind of charges against dismemberment of a body, which he has admitted to doing. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And... As, as it has, that's exactly what happens. The jury comes back and they find him not guilty of murder because beyond a reasonable doubt, they can't prove that it wasn't in self-defence and they're not there to judge him on what he did to the body afterwards because it doesn't change the fact of what happened during the struggle or during the murder. And I, I remember watching this episode and you see them talking about, like, looking back in it and going, and at this point, you know, he had the jury laughing. Because he'd made, a, he he'd did, made yeah. jokes about being dressed up like a woman or whatever, and he had the jury laugh, and and the 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 lawyers were going, he's got them, he's he's got them on side, you know, this is yeah. not going to go how we thought it was going to go, and I was sitting there going, don't be silly, this is going how you think it's going to go, and then they find I'm not guilty, and I'm sitting there going, wow, yeah, the prosecution, um, sort of from the beginning said this is a sort of slam dunk case, you know, we've got him essentially killed the man he said he's killed the man and he's dismembered the body we've got him this is kind of an easy ride and then once he gets the stand and like I say he has the jury laughing it's like they humanize him and yes. instantly the prosecution are going oh fuck like yep. and they pull out the self-defense and they know themselves they can't disprove that like I say that's essentially what happens they find him not guilty and he walks free so I mean it's just it's just crazy from that off he's essentially like I say we can't we can't prove that he did murder him but if he has murdered him he has gotten away with it mm-hmm. um and just just reading your notes here where you've got about the break from the interview this is one of the things i found really interesting about the documentary was 
Jareki wasn't afraid to challenge Durst and push yeah. his buttons and, and push for him. But at the same time, they almost had this kind of mutually respectful relationship. They did. Durst still respected Jareki and obviously Jareki wanted to get to the truth and get as much out of him as he could. There was mm-hmm. this interesting sort of, I wouldn't call it a friendship, but a relationship between the two of them. Yeah, there was. I mean, that that comes up sort of later on, like in the last episode, um, you know, Jareki, I mean, Jareki actually says that he likes the guy and he, he he's not sure how this is going to go. And he's, you know, he's you can see he's, he's torn. You can mm-hmm. tell he's torn um, about it. But yeah, so the, I mean, the, the end of this episode. Um, so again, this is back to the interview with Jareki. They decide to take a break from the interview, but um, his mic, so Durst's mic is still on. And this is the, the, kind of the first that we see of it, but he, he does this sort of this kind of rambling um, thing quite a lot. And this is the first we see of it. And he's sitting there with his mic on and he says, I did not knowingly, purposely, intentionally lie. I made mistakes. I did not tell the whole truth. Nobody tells the whole truth. And he's just he's just sitting there on his own saying mm-hmm. that. And his lawyer comes over and says, they can hear everything you're saying because your mic's still on. And what is, I mean, what he's referring to when he's saying, I did not tell the whole truth, nobody tells the whole truth. He's speaking to Jareki about being on the stand and, you know, I solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. What his defence lawyers had told him was that you focus on the first and the last part. Tell the truth and nothing but the truth. But the bit in the middle, the full truth, if you don't want to tell the full truth, that's fine. You know? <laughs> and that's what he's kind of referring to there. He's saying, Andrea. I did not tell the whole truth. Nobody tells the whole truth. And then, yeah, his lawyer has to come over and say, they can hear everything you're saying because your mic is still on. And he's just like, oh. <laughs> it's, so you're like, what? He almost, yeah. He just takes it in his stride, doesn't he? He's just like, oh, right, He okay. does. It's nothing, nothing seems to fear him. Nothing mm-hmm. scares him at all. Like, if that, it, well, given the circumstances, if that had been anybody else, they'd have been like, oh, fuck. Like, yeah. they've just they've just heard me saying something that could essentially incriminate me, or mm-hmm. it definitely casts doubt, um, but just completely takes it in his stride, doesn't care about it, which we see kind of later on as well, like another sort of rambling moment that is a defining moment of the whole series, of the whole yeah. story, really. But yeah, so sort of the last couple of episodes, yeah, sort of stuff that we've already kind of mentioned with Kathy's disappearance, Robert Durst's family sort of remained silent on the whole thing because, and I think the theory is that they wanted the investigation to be bedded and to not bring any undue attention to the Durst organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and but they did actually hire a criminal lawyer for Robert during the time, and. Jareki asks him about this. He says, why did you hire a criminal lawyer? And Robert says, you know, it was his brother that did that. But the aim of him was that he was to actually find Kathy. And Jareki's like, you hired a criminal lawyer to find Kathy? And he went, well, yeah, because he had a private detective. Um, So they try and find Ed Wright, who's the private detective. And they do get a telephone conversation with him. um, But he's quite cagey about the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but they do, I don't know how, but they end up getting a hold of his report. And what Ed's report shows is that there's discrepancies in Durst's recollection of the night Kathy disappeared. Um, and the doorman who claimed to see her, um, has retracted his statement as well. He said he never saw her. Um, and when this came to the Durst organization, like went to obviously his bosses, he was then mutually terminated was his term. <laughs> so I think. Again, this is a situation where the Durst family are they're, they're kind of looking into it, hoping that Robert's not involved. And then when they're getting close to being involved, he they're just like, no, let's just cut this now. Yeah. So again, it just casts it does cast this doubt on the whole situation. But yeah, and then it, it comes to the again the possibility of Robert killing Susan. Is it possible? Was he there? Uh, the police can, they can put him in California, they can put him in Trinidad on the 19th of December, which is four days before Susan was killed. And it is possible that he drove to LA 
to kill her and then got a flight from San Francisco to New York because they're tracing like his phone calls and things, but he did go off the grid for about three days. So mm-hmm. again, there's nothing concrete there to say he was definitely there, he definitely did it, but there's enough reasonable doubt there as well that it is, it is possible. He was yeah. kind, He was in the area, he could well have done it, but there's nothing concrete to put him there. No, it's like you say, it's not outside the sort of realms of possibility. And that's, that's where a lot of it comes from as well as the... A lot of what's going on at the moment is still theorising. It's still yeah. hypothetical scenarios rather than anything concrete. And that's what the whole series is sort of focused on. Like, they know, like, that, you know, he's been suspected of all this stuff. Like, he, he, he know, like they know he killed Morris Black um, and dismembered the body, but he was acquitted of that on the grounds of self-defence. There's speculation, was it murder? But we can never prove that. However, with Susan and with Cathy, it's all speculation. And I think Jarecki wants to try and get to the truth, but even through the interviews, you're still kind of getting this, you know, he's, I'll, I'll give him that he's confident. He's confident in his answers. Like, no matter yep. what he's saying, and because nothing phases him, he's he is extremely confident. Um, and then one of the defining moments, I think, is the end of episode five, where Susan's stepson gets in touch with um, Jarecki, or one of the producers of the show, and says, I have essentially says, I've got something that you might want to see. And they show him, they, they show a, a letter in amongst Susan's belongings, because the, the stepson obviously got all of, all of it. There's a letter there, and it's in the exact same handwriting as the cadaver note, down to the misspelling of the word Beverly in Susan's address. And again, like, it's just too much of a coincidence. Like, the fact yeah. that there's a note that says, you know, cadaver in her address, and then there's a, a letter from Robert that was sent, I think it was like years prior, and the envelope on it has the address, and it's like it's like a spin copy. Yeah, it, it completely is. And this is where it's, like, this for me was where it got really, the whole thing was interesting, but this is where it started to get a bit exciting. Yeah. At this point, because it was like, there's finally something physical, a piece of evidence that looks yeah. like it could be what wraps it up, almost. Absolutely, definitely. So, and then it ends there from sort of episode five and it goes into the last episode. Now, this episode is like, this is where, like you say, it gets so exciting because Jarecki wants to do a second interview with um, with Robert to find out you know, just to kind of gauge his reaction when he shows him the letter of the cadaver note and the letter that he sent, um, you know, just sort of gauge his reaction on it. That's what this whole, that's what the last episode sort of centres around. They also show the letters to the New York DA um, and also Durst's attorney for a reaction. Um, the DA is convinced that it's from the same person. And the the attorney gives a blanket statement that he could see similarities and differences. Obviously, although this is all kind of after the fact, his attorney doesn't want to turn around and say, well, actually, yeah, he probably could have done it. Yeah. Um, he's still defending him. But you could tell it's just such a blanket statement. They go to a forensic examiner with the letters and the forensic examiner concludes that they're quite concrete on being written by the same person. So Jarecki tries to set up a second interview with... Um, Robert Durst and it just proves to be nothing but difficult he claims at one point that he's going to Madrid um, but he tells um, and then the stepson gets in touch with him to say that the filmmakers are wanting to speak to him about Susan and everything and Robert says oh yeah they want to do a second interview with me but don't tell them I'm in LA because I told them I was in Barcelona and yeah, he got the that The stepson wrong as well. tells the filmmakers this, and it's all on camera. And Jarecki's like, "Well, actually, he told me he was in Madrid, not Barcelona." So even then, he's like tripping up in his own lies. He then gets arrested, and the filmmakers find out that Robert gets arrested for violating his protection order from his brother Douglas by visiting his house and standing outside the front door. And then, just like after all this. He gets released and all the rest of it. He, it's like he just changes his mind and wants to do a second interview. So obviously they, they jump on the opportunity. They're like, yeah, we mm-hmm. want to we want to do the second interview. And 
you can see like the sort of day before the interview, they're sort of planning how they're going to approach it. You know, they don't want to just sit him down and just go, there's the letters, what do you think? But they don't want to give him enough time to mull it over to come up with something. So they're kind of going through how they're going to approach it. And then when it comes to the day of the interview, Jarecki starts by showing Robert the, like, I think he first starts by showing him pictures and things and all this kind of stuff. And then he shows um, Robert the letter that he sent to Susan years prior, not the cadaver note, but the letter. And he claims to not remember writing it, but he does say that it's very possible that he did. And then he's shown the envelope because I think I think the letter just said something like it was it was quite a short letter. It just said something about like thinking of the old times or something like that. Yeah. And he said he doesn't remember writing it, but it's very possible that he did. And then he's shown the let the, the envelope that the letter was sent in. And obviously, this is like a defining moment because you could see the address, you could see how similar it is to the cadaver note, and he just he sort he just kind of looks at it and he points out straight away that the word Beverly is spelt wrong, which is what he pointed out um, on the cadaver note as well. Yeah, and it's like even then he pointed them out, but it's like you're not seeing any kind of recognition that oh, are they going to make this jump here? He's just made very matter of fact about it. He's like, oh, look, the word Beverly's spelt wrong. He's then shown the cadaver note and he points out that they both have the same misspelling and the handwriting is very similar. So he can see how the police or a handwriting expert would conclude that they are written by the same person. Is this the point where he starts burping? <laughs> yes, he does. This is where he starts burping. <laughs> Such a weird reaction to what's it going is. on. It is. Like, you, I mean, is it nerves, do you think? I think so. I think it's almost like the next step up from his eye twitch. Yeah, I think so. I think he's maybe starting to see that the net's closing in and it's kind of like it's part of like a nervous twitch. But even then, afterwards, he still very confidently, adamantly says that he didn't write the cadaver note, but he did write the letter. Again, it's just that it's that confidence that's quite frightening, really. Mm -hmm. Like he's essentially presented with evidence that shows that these are written by the same person, but he still just denies that he wrote the cadaver note, but he did write the letter. And then I think it's just kind of left at that and they end the interview and then this is how the whole series ends. This is, again, he goes to the bathroom, but still with his mic on, you'd think he would have learned, but yep. evidently not. <laughs> um, so he goes to the bathroom and with his mic still on, he... And again, he's obviously just speaking to himself. It's like the ramblings of a madman. But he he says, um, there it is. You're caught. You're right, of course. But you can't imagine. Arrest him. I don't know what's in the house. Oh, I want this. What a disaster. He was right. I was wrong. And the burping. I'm having difficulty with the question. What the hell did I do? Kill them all, of course. Like, yeah. The whole the whole <laughs> thing is just it's just weird. And it almost feels like the whole series is building up to that moment. It is hundred percent. It, it's, it's all building up to that. It's almost like it's been written. You know, it is so surreal. Yeah. I remember watching that bit, and when he started saying, you know, there it is, you're caught. Um, what the hell did I do? Killed them all, of course. I, I, I was just lying down at that point. At that point, I was like bolt upright. Whoa, you know. Yeah, same. I was just in like a state of shock. I was like, because again, watching the whole thing, although he's very matter of fact and he kind of has no emotion, and there's so many coincidences here that they can't be coincidences. Mm -hmm. I was still, I still found him a, a likable person, and I don't know why. And I think. It's it's weird. I think you you wanted him you wanted it to not be true. You wanted all of this to be some mm -hmm. misunderstanding, and this interview was going to prove that actually he wasn't involved. However, when it gets to that bit, you're like, "What the hell <laughs> is this?" Like I say, is this admission of guilt, or is this the ramblings of a madman? Because I mean, we've got to remember as well, this man is now oh, like how old is he at this point? He's Definitely in his 60s. I think so, yeah. Uh, yeah, he's definitely, I'm sure he's definitely in his 60s. Um, and you're and he's obviously 
lived a very weird and bizarre kind of life. Is this just ramblings of a madman or is it admission of guilt? Yeah. And one of the things we, we kind of haven't covered is the fact that he had quite a strange relationship with his brother. And his yes. brother actually took out, like you, you mentioned earlier, his brother took out mm-hmm. a restraining order on him. And, I mean, like you say, he's likeable and you're looking for reasons not to. At one point, I managed to get to the conclusion that his brother was maybe framing him and it was going to go even wilder. But then that was disproved pretty quickly as well. But yeah, there was th- always- that was the... Uh, yeah, on you go. Uh, no, was, all I was going to say was, yeah, like you say about the, the relationship with his brother... He's asked about it and he says this stems from back when they were five years old. Like, well, when he was like five years old or something like that. Um, But obviously the biggest part of it was Douglas was given the organisation to, you know, to manage and to run. Whereas Robert is the eldest son. He should have got it. So, you know, that's kind of like they had massive sort of problems. And like, yeah, like you say, Douglas does take out a restraining order. And this is why... Um, which I mentioned is what he gets arrested for because um, he violated the protection order by turning up at his house and just loitering outside his house. Like he doesn't do anything. He's just loitering. Mm-hmm. And again, it's just, it's things like that. They're just so bizarre and weird. Like what, what is your motive for doing this? Like, are you trying to get at your brother or, you know, because there was also, because Douglas came forward and he doesn't do the interview at all. Like he refuses to be a part of the the series. But he, um, like he has come out as saying that, um, you know, he was scared of his brother. That he was convinced his brother was going to kill him. Um, so this is why the restraining order was in place. And the Durst family are very much they have like a vow of silence. Um, they don't speak about what happens in the Durst family. So there's definitely a whole lot more behind that story that we will ever know like, mm-hmm. we don't get to hear it we don't we're not aware of it but there's a lot more to that that i think plays a part in this story as well yeah because there's a point in the middle where uh Jareki goes to some kind of gala some kind of uh fundraiser night or something it's like an appreciation night for douglas himself i think mm-hmm. like and he actually approaches him and speaks to him and Douglas is very hostile and then tries not yeah. to be in it, it's, it's but he's so different from Robert as well you know because Robert's just this almost monotone whereas Douglas was I, I don't know he was like up and down a wee bit with his um, hostility yeah definitely definitely was so just watching the whole series I mean for me like I say I started out very much with the with the sort of view that you know, this is this is kind of weird. Like, what what is this going to sort of lead to? And throughout the interview, um, throughout the interviews with like with Jareki, like I said, I can't quite explain it. He did seem like a likable character despite being a bit odd. And mm-hmm. you know, I did in the beginning. I did want it to be that this was him going to prove that he wasn't involved in any of this. But as the series kind of goes on, there's just too many too many things that come up that are. A coincidence. Yeah. The only thing that is really concrete is the letter that's been written, you know, which obviously came out during the series, which is why it's never been brought up before. But everything else is sort of speculation. But it's just, to me, it's just bizarre. It is. And that, that's <laughs> that's the only way you can describe it. Like, like yeah. I was saying before, it's, I haven't watched that many documentaries, but I feel like this is a really unique one for those reasons. There's all these coincidences and there's the fact that by approaching the crew to do an interview, he basically undid his work because they were the ones who gathered up the evidence and they were the ones who could prove yeah, better than the police did and better than anyone else did. They proved that Robert was, you know, I'm almost 100% certain he did it. Yeah, so am I. That's it, absolutely. Like That's what's so strange about this whole thing like like you're saying he essentially got away with murder three times over and by doing this interview by doing this series he's now undone all of that work because mm-hmm. at the very least even if you still believe that he's not involved somehow there's it's brought forward 
a whole new like shadow of doubt over his innocence at the very least. Like I say, with the letter and the fact that he could be placed in um, California at the time of Susan's death. And then again, just things like um, with reopening Kathy's case, the like the things that came out from that, you know, like that he lied. Like nobody knew he lied about his alibi until this series. Yeah. And he just outwardly says it. And so we were saying at the start about the, the different decisions that he was making, the different things he was doing, and, you know, the, the mistakes he was making. So the, there's the deliberate ones where he's stealing that sandwich to see if he could get away with it. Uh-huh. Um, there was the getting in touch with Jericho to get this interview on the go. I mean, they were two of his biggest mistakes with that. Uh-huh. His spelling mistake. You know, learn how to spell Beverly. You know? <laughs> and that's that's another thing about the handwriting. When he's asked about the similarities in the handwriting, he says that, you, he, he's, what was it he says? He says about, he's like, well, it's it's a block handwriting. How else do you write block handwriting? Like, as if that's enough to prove that they're not, they can't mm-hmm. have been written by the same person. Um, and it's like, no, they're, they're actually very uniquely written. Like, I can write in block capitals and it looked completely different to how you write in block capitals. Yeah. But he seemed, he, in his head, he thinks that's enough to prove that he didn't write the cadaver note. It's just unreal. I mean, it really is. When when the Fresh Doc guys were talking about it, I was like, this documentary cannot be as bizarre as they're making it out to be. And yeah. It really, really, like, I mean, that was the word you used, bizarre. It's just... It's someone else. I really hope anyone who's listening to this has watched it first, and not Same. just listening to us. <laughs> yeah, I hope so, because otherwise, like I say, what I said at the start, spoilers! Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just, it is wild. And I mean, this is where the story ends from the series, but we actually, you know, he was arrested not long after the series was made, was he not? Um, yeah. For... Susan's murder. Yeah, so he was arrested um, on March the 14th, 2015 uh, in New Orleans on first degree murder warrant in relation to the Berman killing. This is straight off of Wikipedia. Um, (laughs) On November 4th, 2016, he was transferred to California and soon after was arraigned in LA on first degree murder charges. Uh, October 2018, Los Angeles County Superior Judge Mark Windham ruled there was sufficient evidence for Durst to be tried for the death of Berman. Um, his trial began on the 2nd of March this year, so his trial began just over a month ago. It was postponed when, um, basically because of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak has been postponed. Yeah. They've said until the 6th of April... It's currently the 10th of April and I can't find any further news or information on the trial, which suggests to me it's still not going ahead because COVID-19 is pretty much running rampant out in LA at the moment. Yeah, I would I would believe so as well. So even then, like this obviously, this series was back in sort of 2015, but it's still very much an ongoing case. I mean, it was always going to be ongoing, even if he wasn't arrested because of the speculation, but now... The fact that they, they feel that there's enough there to go with a murder charge. It's interesting to see how that'll pan out. Yeah, I mean, that is, it's, it's crazy. All the things he's done, and it's it's Susan Berman that's the one that's maybe going to get him put away. Yeah, essentially, because, I mean, the only reason he would have had for killing her is that she knew what happened to Kathy. And if this is what he's done for, it's, again, that's another mistake he's made. Mm-hmm. In this whole saga... He's made the mistake of killing a witness. It's very interesting and very bizarre. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I just sit and shake my head. I can't help myself. Same. I wonder if when, or if he's found guilty, do you think he'll ever come forward and say, you know what, the game's up now? This is what happened to Kathy. Maybe. So Larry Eiler... Uh-huh. who was the one I'd done on a Bloody Mess podcast. I'm sure it was him. His attorney, or his uh, his lawyer, or whoever she was, I can't remember her name now, um, She he basically confessed all his murders to her. Yeah. To be released, uh, to be held, and he was trying to use that for leverage to get a sort of reduced sentence or something like that. But 
it didn't work out and he died in jail and as soon as he died she released all those names and gave some kind of closure uh-huh. maybe maybe he'll do something like that maybe not it wouldn't surprise me in this saga that he does essentially hold that information for his benefit i i feel like he would maybe tell that story while he's still alive though just to see the reaction but i also feel like i also feel like if he did tell it i still wouldn't believe it it would be, mm-hmm. he might say that he did do it, but like give out false details or something like that. I don't know. I just, I find it hard to believe what he's saying because he was so deadpan the whole time. I couldn't always make up my mind if I believed him or not. It was believable. I did say that, that, you know, a lot of what he was saying was completely plausible. But at the same time, there was this element of it could easily not be true. And that, that just throws me. Yeah, definitely. Like I say, for me, I think it was because there was the no emotion sort of matter of fact. I was very much confused by it, but did want, sort of then I wanted it to be true, that what mm. everything he was saying was true. But yeah, I think with all of this, I yeah, if he did, if he essentially came out and said, by the way, I did kill Cathy back in 1982, I still, I wouldn't be able to take it as gospel. Mm-hmm. There would, there would still be some kind of doubt in my mind. Like, mm-hmm. It'd be interesting if he revealed the location of Morris's head, though. That's another thing, yeah. That would be very interesting. I personally don't think that would ever happen. I don't think he would ever do that because he essentially got away with it on self-defence. Like, even in his lifetime, like you know, he's an old man now, even if he knew he was dying, I don't know. I think there's something about that one, that story, that that murder that I think isn't that significant to him to kind of bring forward. Does that make sense? Like Because yeah. there's so much speculation around the the disappearance of his wife, um, whereas Morris Black was just a neighbour and a friend. I don't think he would ever want anybody to know that he actually did murder him. Mm. It's, 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 he's, he's a unique character. Yeah, definitely. he really is. He definitely is. So, I think that about sums it all up then yep <laughs> and again I, I just urge you to watch it if you haven't yes if you haven't you definitely need to yeah and if you have watched it just let us know your thoughts and let us know what we've missed as well I think because there's so much in there there definitely is like even like even through my notes I'm like oh I didn't actually kind of mention that like but yeah like there's so <laughs> much to this story that mm-hmm. it's it's just a lot to kind of like say over yeah. So definitely, definitely watch the series if you haven't. Um, and if you have, please get in touch and let us know like what your thoughts are on it. And I think we could sort of wrap it up there. Mm-hmm. Just a like, thank you for joining um, for my very first episode. And if anybody listening wants to sort of recommend a documentary or series that you'd like to hear being discussed, or if you actually want to start in the podcast, then please get in touch. You can find me on Facebook uh, and Instagram. Um, my handles are www.facebook.com forward slash lindsay.mccallum2. And on Instagram, you can find me by searching for littleraofsunshine.x. Um, and I also have pages specifically for the podcast, which can be found by simply searching A Sinister Spotlight on Facebook and Instagram. David, where can we find you? So you can find me at dstoby or on any of the other Twitter handles for <laughs> FC Podnet. Um, yeah. Science and Fiction, Perth Podcast, <laughs> uh, lots of places. But yeah, at DStobie's the, the preferred one on Twitter. Fabulous. Um, I also want to give a big thank you to obviously yourself, Stobie, for helping me get set up. Um, oh, and also to Jason, who has created my theme music, which I'm just obsessed with. For it. I, can't <laughs> get over, I can't get over it. Like, see, when he sent me it, I must have listened to it about six times. Yeah. Uh, I was the same. I was the same. Um, if you're not really into science fiction, you should still check out the science of fiction just for the first 30 seconds, or the first minute and a half, rather, to listen to the theme you made for that, because it is, it is the exact same. When I listened to it the first time, I was like, this is incredible. But he's a talented guy. He, he just... He... I know, I, I, you know, he asked me what I wanted from it, and I must have been the most vague sort of person in the world. I was just like, oh, I don't know, like, this is what it's about. And he just said, okay, that's fine. And then when he came back with it, I was... I was like, oh my God, like, that's 
better than I could have ever hoped for. So yeah, thank you so much, Jason. It's much appreciated. Um, And also you can check out um, other podcasts that are on the network um, by searching for www.fcpod.net forward slash a sinister spotlight is mine. Um, And I think there's other ones as well, isn't there? Like if you just search for fcpod.net, you'll find all the other sort of podcasts on the network as well. Absolutely. Okay, perfect. So I think that'll do us and we'll wrap it up. So, well, thank you again, everyone. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to another great podcast from the Fair City Podcast Network, a group dedicated to connecting and developing podcasts. Check out fcpod.net for more great podcasts and content.